I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Taylor Sparks. I'm here at the University of Utah in the Material Science and Engineering Department. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Falkowski. And today we're also joined by a good friend of mine, Paul Slusser. You wanna introduce yourself, Paul? Yeah, so I, I went to school here at the University of Utah and uh, did spend a little bit of time in Silicon Valley working for applied materials. And I then founded a company called Power Practical here in Salt Lake City, who I worked for for about six years. And now I'm a free range entrepreneur at this point. And, uh, just decided to come talk about something that's near and dear to me, which is thermoelectric materials. So thermoelectric materials, maybe to kick this off, to put it somewhat in context, let me ask, you know, did you guys see the movie? It was 2015, apparently. The movie Martian <laughs> came out. Did you guys see this? Yes, Matt I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a good movie. huge box office success. Everybody loved this. Now in this, do you guys remember, he's, he's marooned on the planet. He's trying to survive. So he needs things like electricity. He needs food to eat, all this stuff. And at one point, he needs to get from point A to point B in this rover. And I think it was just not going to be warm enough. He was going to freeze to death. If he didn't find a way to heat power it. power to drive mm-hmm. and heat it. I have doubled my battery life by scavenging rover one. But if I use the heater, I will burn through half my battery every day. If I do not use my heater, I will be <laughs> slowly killed by the laws of thermodynamics. I would love to solve this problem right now, but unfortunately, my balls are frozen. So do you remember what he did? Like he found the source of heat. You guys remember roughly what this was? Yeah, doesn't he? He finds, I forget which one, it's like an old rover, and he digs up the, uh, the nuclear heat source in it. Good news, I may have a solution to my heating problem. Bad news, it involves me digging up the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Now, if I remember my training correctly, one of the lessons was titled, Don't Dig Up the Big Box of Plutonium, Mark. I get it, RTGs are good for spacecraft, but if they rupture around humans, no more humans, which is why we buried it when we arrived and planted that flag so we would never be stupid enough to accidentally go near it again. But as long as I don't break it. (laughs) I almost just said everything will be fine out loud. Look, the point is I'm not cold anymore. So this book is supposedly set in the future and today in not science fiction, but in real world, like the Curiosity Rover is on Mars doing Curiosity rover things, right? And it has a what's called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, RTIG. Do we, did it just die? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I just, too soon. It's a little bit sad, but yeah, Curiosity, they've, they've given up on Curiosity. The, the program's over because it got oh, stuck. Oh, that makes it, me sad. It, it died in a – it does have – it depends on both solar and the, the, the RTIG, right? So – well, our, our <laughs> condolences to, to NASA and your rover who just died. In any case, this is real. It really does have a generator. So it's got this radioisotope that gets hot as it decays. 
and then you've got Mars, which is ridiculously cold. So you've got hot next to a cold. If you put this generator between those, so it's got a temperature gradient across it, all of a sudden, you've got electrical power, right? So this exists today, this technology. Now, Paul's gonna tell us that even though these technically do exist in really cool science applications, that's not where most of these things are being used. Yeah, so I, I think by mass, if we're just gonna weigh the market literally, uh, we would find that most thermoelectric materials are bismuth telluride, and most of them are keeping wine at a specific temperature. Well, let's dive into a little bit of how these work, a little bit of the history, and then we'll talk about, all right, what's the buzz in the last 20 years? Because there's certainly a lot of buzz about these things in the science fields. Um, and are they going to really you know, change our lives or not? So maybe to start with, Paul's mentioned a couple of things. He mentioned the Peltier effect. He mentioned that these things can either, you know, you can use them to generate power like they're doing for the Curiosity rover, or you can pour power into them and you can produce a temperature gradient. So let's dive into that. In This goes all the way back like several hundred years ago. There's a guy named Thomas Zabeck. I think he lived in Switzerland, uh, 1821. He basically, you know, like these gentleman scientists of the era, he was basically tinkering around. Like he was taking different metals and doing things with them, heating them up and looking at what they did. So in this one experiment, he takes two different metals. He makes a circuit out of them. So he bonds them in two spots, right? So you've got basically like a circle where the top half of the circle and the bottom half are different metals. And then he puts it in close proximity to a compass needle and he holds a candle up to one of the junctions. Like, why did he choose to do this? I have no idea. But that's what happens. And uh, when he does this, all of a sudden he sees the compass needle starts fluctuating. It starts moving. And so why? Why is that happening? So electrodynamics now, we know that when you pass a current through a closed loop like that, that you get, well, when you pass a current through a wire, period, it produces a magnetic field, right? Not necessarily a crazy strong one, but if you have a really light compass needle, it can cause that to be deflected. So what's happening is that by heating up one end of this loop, we know that electricity is passing through this wire. So why on earth is that happening? Want to take a stab at this? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's the, uh, the pipe half filled with water model of uh, electric conduction, right? So we take our piece of you know, PVC pipe and we cap both ends and we fill it halfway with water and the water represents our electronic conductors in a metal. These are generally electrons, um, which are our free carriers. And if we tip the pipe, which is analogous to heating one end of it, we're going to see these carriers move down the, the potential well to where they would be more stable. And so we see a distribution of states, which in the pipe model is we see air on the upper end of the pipe and water on the lower end of the pipe. And that represents a voltage being evolved. Bingo. So. That voltage. So this, uh, the term that was introduced by Zabeck, right, they, they named it after him, um, was the Zabeck coefficient. So if you have some temperature difference, right, in Kelvins, and then you can quantify that voltage, then the voltage divided by that difference in temperature, we call that the Zabeck coefficient, right? It's the voltage that gets produced spontaneously with no moving parts. The only thing moving are your electrical carriers, right? That's your Zabeck coefficient. So this was interesting. Obviously, it generated a lot of buzz. Lots of other scientists, including some well-known people, dived in on this. Um, so a guy named Gustav Magnus, he was somebody who basically said, okay, the temperature difference matters, but it doesn't matter how you got to that temperature difference, or is it just the temperature it's at, at equilibrium? This is important because if it only matters at equilibrium, then we call this a thermodynamic state function. Once we know that it's tied to thermodynamics, then we can start doing some interesting things with it. For example, later on, William Thomson, the same guy that we know as Lord Kelvin, as in the person who we named the Kelvin temperature scale after, 
he figured out what exactly the thermodynamic relationship was between the Zabit coefficient and the Peltier coefficient. Andrew, you want to explain what is the Peltier coefficient for us? Yeah, so my understanding of it at least is that the Peltier coefficient is essentially a ratio or a relationship between the amount of heat applied as well as the the amount of charge carriers, the movement of charge carriers. Or is that do I have that re- reversed? No, yeah, you've got that. So we've just said that you can use these devices either to take waste heat, take a portion of that heat and turn it into electrical current, or you can apply electrical current through this and change the temperature, right? And mm-hmm. it is that ratio of the heat to the electrical current. That's the Peltier effect. So this William Thompson, he basically said from a thermodynamic you know, standpoint, how do you relate the Zabeck coefficient to the Peltier you know, effect or the Peltier coefficient? Um, so now that we can relate them with thermodynamics, that paved the way for our friend, a guy named Edmund Altenkirch, who said, okay, if this is a thermodynamic problem, then we, can, we know what the fundamental limit is. In thermodynamics, when you're trying to optimize the energy that can come out of a, some sort of generator, there's like the Carnot efficiency, which maybe people have heard of before. And he said, well, we can do the same thing, except we have to look at where our losses come from. So where do the losses come from? Uh, it gets tricky. In fact, this is really, I would say, the birth of what is like one of the most frustrating materials design criteria that we've ever faced. Because to optimize performance, you need to do a couple things. First off, you don't want joule heating. Joule heating is when you basically pass a current through a wire and that wire gets hot, right? The electrons or holes, that, that's the absence of electrons, they're colliding with atoms. And as they do so, they're imparting energy. And we don't want that. That's energy that could have been gone to do other useful things for us. So we don't want joule heating. Therefore, we want a material that conducts electricity just fantastically. At the same time, you do not want a material that conducts heat because we want a big temperature difference across this thing. So, Paul, how easy is it to, to engineer and design a material that is a great conductor for electrons but a miserable conductor for heat? It's really challenging is the, the, the summary. It's really, really challenging, like work on it for hundreds of years sort of challenging and not really change things that much. Um, the main issue is that electrons participate in thermal conduction. So if you make a whole bunch of carriers, now you have carriers for heat. Yeah. And if you make it so that something has low thermal conductivity, you may disrupt the the carrier of electricity. So it's they're tied together. They're both functions of each other. Yeah. If you remember from Gen Chem, you probably would have learned about the Wiedemann-Franz law. This is like one of the very early observations, which is exactly what he said, like that if you have an electrical conductivity and that increases, there's a proportional increase to your thermal conductivity. So yeah, this is tricky. Um, so what did people do? I find it interesting that even 200 years ago, the very first guy who discovered this, this Thomas Zabeck, he looked at lots of different materials, including some of the materials that we're still using today. He was looking at lead telluride and others, right? Yeah, it's Zinc really frustrating to see that as one of his, the materials he's investigating. Like, oh crap, we're, we're still working on lead telluride today. Pretty remarkable. <laughs> um, that said, there were some basic design rules that people came up with. For example, we know that metals, you know, something that has great electrical conductivity and unfortunately has a high thermal conductivity, it still won't work because as you go towards really high numbers of electrical carriers, like electrons, your Zabeck coefficient, remember that's the voltage produced for a temperature difference, it just plummets. So the very first system that he made was out of metal wires and so it was really poor. You don't get a big uh, potential out of this, so you don't get a large current flow. Um, on the other hand, if you go the totally other direction towards insulators, these are things that don't have very many electrical carriers and they just don't conduct electricity very well. Well, they're great in terms of having a great big temperature gradient because they also don't conduct heat well. And they have a really big Zabeck coefficient. So there's a huge voltage generated 
there's just no current you can get out of it because they don't you – know. and so basically what right. people did, the first design rule, I'd say like the earliest one, and this is now in the 20th century. This is around World War II era as people said, all right, it can't be a metal. It can't be an insulator. Let's split the difference and use a semiconductor, right? And this is really what they did. And so the Russians actually led the way here. To my Indeed. knowledge, they were the first uh, commercial thermoelectric generator, and it basically it, – it was very simple. But all of a sudden you have a material made of – semiconductors, which you can dope. And when I say dope, what we're doing is we're changing the number of carriers on a per volume basis. And all of a sudden they've got a material that has some efficiency. Now, not very efficient. I think device efficiencies around this era were right around 5% or less. So we're not talking about a major energy source, but it is an interesting energy source because there are no moving parts. And so you could have this deployed in the field, right? Yeah. Um, and do interesting things with it. Kerosene radios were especially Bingo. important because they... They, you know, Siberia is very, very large and very cold. <laughs> and so you're, you're naturally going to, and dark during the winter. So you, you at, are very limited on how much fuel resource you have. So if it can be multifunctional, that's great. You're, you need a light, a candle to see by. And if you can run your communication system on that, even better. Um, so they sometimes coupled them with accumulators with batteries and they were able to, in a very rudimentary way, do exactly what we could do the best we can do today pretty much is to power these remote uh, generators, remote sensors uh, from heat, from any fuel potentially. So You're exactly right. And I, the key thing I think you said there is that these are typically like remote applications. That dovetails perfectly into the timeline because after this, you know, post-World War II, this is the Cold War era. The East and the West are really vying for control. And part of that was technological developments. They're both trying to develop their space programs simultaneously. So in space, especially a deep space probe that's getting further and further away from the sun, the flux of energy from the sun falls off as the square, the fourth it, or something? Yeah, so it's surface area, right? So as you get out, you're, if you're looking at solar flux, right? It's just falling it, it off It falls fast. off so quickly. <laughs> and so if you're trying to, say, power a deep space probe that's heading to the edge of our solar system, you're not going to do well to rely on energy from the sun because it's going to get progressively harder. Not to mention, you know, things don't get better over time. They get worse. <laughs> so, so to solve this, astronauts, you know, NASA basically said we need a new, yeah, we need a new way to deal with uh, generating power. And so that's when they introduced this idea of the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. And believe it or not, these deep space probes, you know, Cassini uh, and several others, they relied on these yeah. and they were remarkably efficient for what they did. Yeah, and if, I mean, Voyager, Pioneer, uh, these things, you know, that have left the solar system, the few human objects that have left the solar system all carry thermal electric generators with them. Um, because it's really the only option. It You know, these things need to be small, lightweight, very few moving parts, high reliability. Uh, they need to make enough power for long enough that you can actually um, – still use the sensors. Now, at this point, the, the, the communications with these probes are pretty much over. They're so far away. The radios are very, the signals are very weak. The amount of power these generators are producing has fallen off a lot. Um, we, were, we were talking about half-lives and stuff, but I think it's largely due to degradation of the generator yeah. from radioactive decay. I mean, yeah. neutrons. I, even though they try running. and shield this thing, like, yeah. well, it's just in, this, in the galaxy. Like, there's just things hitting this. Yeah, cosmic cosmic rays. I mean, once you're exposed outside the heliopause to the rest of the galaxy, it's it's a pretty uh, energetic place out there. So, not to paint a bleak picture, but you know, we did a pretty good job of developing materials rapidly in that World War II and just after the World War II era when it came to thermoelectrics. 
But then there was a pretty major pause, like in terms of efficiencies. Remember how I talked about there's this material design problem. If you're trying to maximize efficiency, there's this thing that we call ZT. And ZT is basically just as it reaches infinity, then your efficiency reaches the Carnot efficiency, as good as it can get, basically. And so the ZT, we want it to be as big as possible. But in this era, they had it to a value of about one. So it's a dimensionless number, basically. And one, that corresponds to an efficiency between maybe 5 and 10%, not amazing. And for the, from the time period 1960 all the way up till 1990s, there was really very little improvement in these. And then something happened. Like there was this renaissance where everybody started coming at this with new ideas and new approaches. And the focus has been on ZT, on this material property uh, amalgam, amalgam of the materials properties that dictates efficiency. So the idea, well, the result is that over the last two decades, we have seen improvements in the ZT value. You're seeing things where now the figure of merit, this ZT figure of merit is over two, so we've doubled it. What that means for device efficiency is that we're now in the 10 to 15 or almost in the 20% range. So that sounds really good and exciting. Um, today, in this episode, we're gonna dive into what have been these advances that change things. We had a three or four decade pause with very little improvement. And now all of a sudden things are happening again. So what is it that we've done? And then from a practical end, we're going to have Paul sort of chime in, you know, is it translating to the real world or not? Um, before we can do that, we've got to dive into, talk about some basic vocabulary in order to describe these new approaches. So bear with us as we define just a few terms. Andrew, you want to kick it off? Yeah, so probably the first one and the most talked about um, sort of vocabulary when you're talking about thermoelectrics is going to be the Seebeck coefficient. And this one we've already talked about quite a bit. Um, it's essentially just the voltage that's produced when you apply temperature difference across these materials. Uh, now, I, I, I'm sad that as a community we do this, but there's also another word for the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. There's Seebeck coefficient. If you hear us talk about thermopower or if you see thermopower in the literature, unfortunately, it's the same thing. And this is silly because power this is a voltage for time, so it's not a power anyways. But that is a word that people will use, so that's thermal power. I, I really try to avoid using thermal power in but place it, of the Seebeck. Yeah, coefficient. super common though. Yeah, it is. It is. It's an unfortunate thing. Um, I've already said what ZT is. Remember, that's our figure of merit. So it scales with device efficiency. Basically, the higher the ZT, the better the device. And there's no fundamental reason why it can't reach infinity, right? Just in practical terms, we haven't found a way to make it really better than one, maybe two. There are reports of just over two. Um, that's ZT. Okay, Paul, what's power factor? So the, in the power factor, we're talking about the, the uh, numerator of our ZT expression, which is the, uh, it's the Seebeck coefficient squared times the, the electrical conductivity. So basically, that's the... <laughs> our ability for something to make power from. And so you can see with those two parameters, both of those are dependent on temperature, carrier concentration, uh, structure, the size of the device, the size, the, the, you know, the, all sorts of materials parameters are in each one of those. And a lot of them are dependent on the same things. So that it's, it's all mixed up. We have a, a, a linked set of equations where there's no solution to, to solve out, oh, you just have to move this one up. <laughs> so a guy that I admire, he described this in terms of medicine. Like imagine if you're a doctor trying to treat a patient and you treat one symptom, but in doing so, it aggravates another symptom. I think they call this contraindicated, like the symptoms or the treatment is contraindicated. That's what we have here. You try and improve the system by, say, increasing carrier concentration and it like tanks your other properties. So yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, all right, Andrew, what's Bangap? All right, so Bangap is essentially it's an energy range in a solid where electron where no electron states can exist essentially. So metals don't really have band gaps, but we often use band gaps to describe semiconductors or insulators. In these materials, the band gap is essentially the energy distance between the lower energy occupied state and the next higher unoccupied energy level. So for electrical conduction to happen, you need to get either electrons into the unoccupied higher energy level, or you need to get holes, which are essentially just the absence of electrons, into that lower occupied level. Now, this is always, I think, hard for people to grasp what they're hearing it for the first time. Let me just add a really simple analogy if it's possible. Think of England, of the big red double-decker buses. If you want to move front back, you know, from the front to the back on that bus, one way that you might do it is from hopping from empty seat to empty seat. But imagine that the lower energy level, you know, the lower level of that bus is totally filled. All the seats are occupied. You now no longer can hop from seat to seat to go, you know, spatially forward and backwards on that bus. What you have to do instead is you have to pay the energy penalty to go up the stairs to that upper level where maybe there are empty seats. And once you're up there, since there's empty seats, you can move around willy-nilly, no problem. But you had to basically be bumped up to that higher energy level. So that lower energy level that he described, we often call that the valence band. And we're going to talk about that later on. And then this upper level, that's our conduction band. And so getting conductors, getting carriers out of that lower band up into the higher one or introducing new ones into that higher band, that's going to be important for uh, engineering better thermoelectrics. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked a little bit about the two types of carriers, either electrons or holes. And depending on what sort of carrier you're using in your material, we classify it a bit differently. So if you're using electrons as your carriers, it's called an N-type. Um, whereas if holes are the uh, carrier, then that's going to be a P-type. And holes are weird. Paul, what's a hole? <laughs> it's a bubble. Um, so <laughs> I think maybe just to go back to band gap for a second, because I know that, that people who specialize in semiconductors, this is just, you know, really humdrum. But we'll try not to belabor the point too much. But does an atom have a, a band gap, Andrew? A I single mean, atom? I mean... It has energy states, right? Yeah, energy I mean, levels. We talk to yeah, you know, yeah, 1s, yeah. 2s, 2p orbitals, right? We talk about orbitals in an atom. Mm -hmm. And then we jump into semi-class and we start talking about band gaps. Where, where does, how do we get from that one thing to the other? It's an ensemble effect, right? When we cluster a whole bunch of atoms together and they have similar properties, like let's say we have silicon atoms, right? Mm -hmm. they, they now have a blended set of energy states where because they're indifferentiable, we can't tell one from another, we now have blended those energy levels together, right? So we can't have a conduction band and a valence band in a single atom. Yeah. Maybe another way to think of it, uh, in your Gen Chem class, when you saw these energy levels for like 1s, 2s, 2p, all these mm -hmm. different things, they were like lines. They were discrete energy levels, even though there's like multiple energy states available at that level. But what happens is, okay, let's say you bring two atoms in close proximity to one another. As you do so, these things have a volume, like these orbitals, they have, an, they have a volume. And as they occupy the same volume, we know that something called the Pauli exclusion principle says you cannot have energy, uh, electrons occupying the same volume at the same energy level. It can't happen. So what it does instead is it slightly splits that energy level. It forms a band. Instead of being a discrete value where they're all at that same point, you now have a band where it's allowable, acceptable states for an electron to exist. And then, again, going back to the band gap is, okay, if you fill up one of those bands, but then you've got a region where there's no band, that's the band gap until you bump it up to a place where there are allowable states again. Right, right. And, I, and so, you know, when we talk about a whole conductor, we're talking about something that is just creating 
the absence of an electron in that valence band, which then can move, right? Because like a bubble in water can move, so can, and it's the absence of water, right? It's, it, it's the analogy falls apart physically. Don't think of it like that. But in terms of like thinking about how an absence of an electron is a physical object that has properties that you could determine. Yeah, to go back to my bus analogy, you could picture the bottom level of the bus being totally filled and then take one person out. Well, as people were to move and fill that empty seat, it kind of looks like the empty seat is moving. That's the hole. That's right. the electron hole. We're, we're tracking empty seats yeah. in the bus model. Um, so closely related to these topics is something called density of states. So what we're talking about is states available for an electron to occupy. And these are typically plotted as a function of energy. And we just have described that like the whole 1s, 2s, the band formation. So the density of states simply says at some given energy level, how many states are available? Is it very few? Is it none? Is it a whole bunch? That's the density of states. All right. What's a grain boundary, Andrew? Yeah. So when solids form, instead of it just being completely uniform on sort of a structural level, often they form in tiny sort of crystalline regions that are oriented in different directions depending on the solidification of the material. And so what ends up happening is the regions between these or the, the sort of the the space or the interface between these regions forms what's called a grain boundary with the regions themselves being the grains. And um, basically, if you like looking at a solid, you'll see lots of different little sections. And then those areas that divide the sections will be those grain boundaries. Yeah, bingo. Okay, Paul, what's an alloy? Basically, when you just mix different stuff together. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, if you take your your melting pot and you, you mix aluminum with a little bit of silicon, you get... An, an alloy of aluminum, right? Yeah. That we, we say the main element involved is what it is. So uh, steel is an alloy of carbon and iron, right? Yeah. So, and another some way, in, oftentimes in thermoelectric, when they talk about alloys, it's not even just from a pure element. You could take a pure compound. So yeah, like co lead telluride, yeah. let's say that's a perfect one-to-one -one ratio of lead and tellurium. You can still add things to that and form an alloy. And at uh, really low levels, we say we're doping it. Yeah. Potentially. But it still follows that definition of an alloy. Yeah. So. Okay. And then the last term we have to introduce is called is a phonon. So what is a phonon? Well, we've already talked about electrical current. And to have electrical current, you have to have carriers of, elect of electricity, right? Things like holes or electrons. Um, these things, we know that they also can carry heat, right? They take energy with them. They can carry heat. Um, but heat is oftentimes, depending on the system, a major component of how heat gets conducted is through what's called phonons. Phonons, you can think of these as lattice vibrations, right? So you've got your lattice, your, your group of atoms all organized in some sort of pattern. If all of these atoms sort of shift in a wave, like if they get displaced and bumped, then that is a phonon. I think the easiest way to think of it is picture you're at a football game and somebody starts the wave, right? The wave, people raise their hands vertically, and then that displacement of waved hands goes all the way around the room. Like that, that is a transverse photon because the displacement is vertical, Right, your hands go up, but the wave travels in a ring in a, in an orthogonal direction. The opposite would be like in a mosh pit in a concert. If somebody shoves somebody, then the translation <laughs> right is there in the same direction. is in the same direction as the displacement. Right, so both of these can conduct heat. The obviously, you, as you can imagine, doing the wave doesn't conduct heat very well. <laughs> right, but if you shove somebody, if you shove the atom next to you in the same direction, that does conduct heat well. Both of these are phonons. Right, that's phonons. Okay, with that said, we are now have the equipped to talk about what have actually people done in the last 20 years that have made these substantive improvements in terms of ZT. So Andrew, you want to kick it off? 
Yeah, so one thing that we mentioned early on was that it's creating thermoelectric material, materials is really a balance between trying to reduce the thermal conductivity but maximize the electrical conductivity. But these are also pretty much linked together, so it's really hard to do one without the other, you know? But what we can do is that these phonons are actually become incredibly crucial because you can reduce the spread of phonons, which is the thermal conductivity of the material, while also without you know, reducing the electrical conductivity. So what scientists and researchers have done is essentially try to develop complex structures within materials in order to try and reduce the spread of phonons or scatter them. So what do you mean by complex structures? Um, so these could be, this, this involves a number of things. So you know, you could have, you could have just a, the unit cell, which is basically the repeating unit within a crystal. And that could be, you know, that could have interstitials or essentially like let me think how to put this, impurities within it. And this could be like an atom is missing from the this sort of lattice that's formed of the atoms. Yeah. It could, um, that'd be like a, a vacancy. You could also have a... So we call these point defects. It's a defect in the crystal, like mm -hmm. a missing atom, yeah. that's a defect. And it happens at a single point as opposed to like a two-dimensional defect or a one-dimensional. Point defects, like vacancies. What else can we have for point defects? Um, you, could, you could have strain within the lattice. So you could have a uh, an interstitial in which you have a, a larger or a smaller atom that's sort of crammed into the lattice that's put like pushing or moving the other atoms out of the way and that distorts the lattice a little bit makes things more more complicated in there so what does that do again for heat and electrical transport i mean so think about you know these phonons are moving through um the lattice itself from atom to atom and now let's say these atoms are pushed in sort of a, a disoriented situation it's much harder to you know move a wave through a through a disoriented mass of people than it is through like a more ordered like if yeah. they're all in seats right oftentimes with heat transport from phonons they'll describe it in terms of scattering events this my gosh this was a big part of my phd anyways we think about scattering and the strength of scattering is proportional to things like you know the size mismatch so if you've got a bunch of really light atoms like carbon and then you were able to put like a really heavy atom in there that the size mismatch and the weight mismatch there, both of those are going to increase the strength of scattering. So a phonon basically just gets scattered into a different direction and therefore it's no longer connecting heat well. In my, I like, I like primitive analogies just to make it easier to think about. I'm, I guess I'm simple that way. That, but something that stuck with me from my first electronic properties class was the rocks in the road model of, of thermal and electrical conductivity that um, we'll attribute that to Richard Cohen. Um, He's basically said that, you know, why, why is gold a worse electrical conductor than silver? And everybody was wrong, of course, because that's how that class goes. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then he explained it as like, well, you know, we just have lumpy road. If the carrot, you're trying to pull your handcart across a, a road or you're trying to pull, drive your car down a, a road, you have to slow down if there are big rocks in the road. If you've got a Jeep that can drive over them, you'll get there, but you're going to have to slow down to get over the big lumps in the road. So I think that in terms of like simplifying our visual understanding of this is like it's pretty easy to get hung up on all the, you know, fancy language. But it's the lump. It's a lumpy road. We can put we can put lumps in the road and yep. slow things down. Right. Mm -hmm. And critically, this is all happening in what Andrew called the unit cell, which, again, is like this smallest uh, pattern that repeats the, the crystal structure over and over. Yeah. And, and while these bumps are good, 
you know, I also, you know, found, you know, you still want a path for electrons to go. So you don't want it to be so bumpy or not have any sort of path for the electrons because you can disrupt or scatter electron flow as well. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, like this goes back to our earlier point that anything you do, it's a it's a complicated system. It affects both things. Now, one of the benefits here is that we've learned how to engineer things so it it influences one thing more than another. Like if you have a, a vacancy, let's say there's like a missing oxygen atom, we know that that's going to do more to scatter heat than it will electrons, right? And so we can still engineer devices, but yeah, you definitely pay for it in both accounts. So what else can you do? You've got interstitials, point defects, vacancies. What else can they do to basically scatter heat, Andrew? Yeah, so they discovered um, classes of these materials, um, scutterdites and clathrates. That, that pronunciation? Yeah. Yep. And essentially these have a, their unit cell has a very a wide open space in the center of it. And what they found is that if you can take a large rare earth metal and you can put the atom of that inside there, it will, when phonons interact with it, it'll sort of rattle. And that will also scatter the phonons and reduce the thermal conductivity as well without inhibiting your electrical conductivity. Yeah. I, th- I find this so interesting. You've got basically a cage with this mm-hmm. rattling ion inside of it. And electrons just can't be bothered. They don't care about the animal in the cage. (laughs) They're just zooming around it. But phonons do care. Like they're the empathetic person. Like they're bothered by this thing rattling around, I guess. You get like a Um, rubbernecking effect. Yeah, that's exactly it. Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, what else can we do? Then uh, alloying. So I think I've already kind of mentioned that, that when you alloy something, that's when you're introducing something else. So if you had, let's say, lead telluride and you wanted to reduce its thermal conductivity, you could choose to put something else on either the lead site or the tellurium site. And obviously, the bigger the difference in terms of size and mass, the bigger the impact it will have on reducing the thermal conductivity. Okay. What else we got, Andrew? Um, so, you know, one material that I found, or at least something that other people have investigated is a potential thermoelectric material is this zinc antimonide. And in, in this alloy, it sort of goes back to that idea of wanting to create regions that will disrupt phon- uh, phonons but not inhibit the uh, or, but also, you know, allow for a path for electrons to flow. And in this, essentially, the uh, the antimony atoms will form sort of a sublattice within the unit cell, and these connect in a very orderly way, as you'd expect. But the zinc atoms will form um, sort of interstitials, or they will essentially randomly orient themselves within the unit cell, which disrupts that phonon, uh, the travel of phonons. But the sublattice still remains within this, which allows electrons to continue flowing. So that's sort of the design we're thinking of. Yeah. So in 1995, a guy who in this field has become important named Glenn Slack, he wrote a book in it. And in it, he basically argued that, okay, to solve this problem, we need what's called a a phonon – we need the concept of a phonon glass electron crystal. We need something Mm -hmm. where at the unit cell level, there's a pathway for electrons to move through it as if it were a crystal. But you want also regions of the crystal to be – glassy, amorphous, disordered in such a way that it blocks heat as if it was a glass. And a lot of these what are called zintal phases, like zinc antimonide that you mentioned, they they naturally achieve this, right? They naturally, by the way that thermodynamics puts these things together, because oftentimes because it's intermetallics and they bond in interesting ways, you have regions that are amenable to electron conduction, but you've got very disordered regions that really scatter phonons pretty well. Okay, let me switch gears a little bit uh, now and talk about a paper that came out about five years ago called the panoscopic approach towards uh, thermoelectric materials. We'll have the paper referenced in our show notes. Uh, This was written by uh, Mercury Kanadzidis and some others at Northwestern University. And here's the basic idea to it. So Andrew described that you can introduce defects, point defects, at the unit cell level. That could be like a missing atom or an interstitial or even talked about things like rattlers. And these are going to be really good at scattering phonons that have a short wavelength. Remember, 
we're talking about phonons, which are waves of displaced atoms. So you can have a really short wavelength where like if the wave basically is from one atom to the atom next to it. But you can also have really long wavelengths. And if you know, if you remember from your physics class, when you learned about Rayleigh scattering and other things, you know that the ability to scatter a wave is proportional to the object of the that's doing the scattering and the size of the wave. So give me to give you an analogy. Think of a wave crashing on a beach. These are waves. Now, do they get scattered by an individual pebble out there in, in the break? No, they get scattered off of larger things that are on the roughly the same size of their wavelength. So when they hit a lighthouse that's sticking out in the ocean, yeah, they scatter really well off of that, right? Because it's about the same size. Well, we have the same sort of possibility to scatter heat at multiple wavelengths um, in materials. Hence the idea of a panoscopic approach, meaning we're going to look at all length scales and try and reduce our thermal conductivity by, by scattering on all these length scales. So how do you do that? Okay, a um, couple different ways. It's, there's a nice illustration in this article where they talk about lead selenide. And then pure lead selenide doesn't have like amazing uh, thermoelectric efficiency. But as you start to engineer it, you can increasingly change different length scales. Add a little bit of sodium and all of a sudden you've got some solid solution. If you mix it with zinc selenide, you form a, uh, you, an alloy essentially. Now you form what are called nanostructures where not just the individual unit cell, but you know hundreds or thousands of unit cells are next to a slightly different one. That's gonna scatter phonons and so on. You can just keep on engineering these things. Um, one of the interesting things, or one of the clever ways that you can do this is with precipitate formation. This is a key concept in material science and engineering. If you heat something up and everything dissolves, but then you cool it down and it's no longer soluble, then you will form a precipitate. So for example, when you uh, made Kool-Aid at home, my kid likes to add like as much sugar as possible to his Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> and if you were to heat that thing up and do it on the stove, technically you would dissolve a lot of that sugar. But when you cool it down, that sugar will crash out again. It precipitates out. Now that's happening in a liquid. You can do the same thing all in a solid state. If you take a, a semiconductor and you dope it with something and heat it up at high temperatures, it might well be, maybe it's molten even, but it's, it's definitely mixed. But when you cool that thing down, you're going to get these things precipitating out. What's the impact of that, Paul? So, I mean, we're, we're basically introducing rocks in the road, right? Yeah. I mean, potential, potential scattering sites where we can then uh, affect phonon transport, right? So, uh, and, and in this study, affecting it on different length scales is really critical because we don't just get one wavelength of phonon in a material. Typically, we get a, a spectrum of materials or of, of, of wavelengths. So basically you could potentially engineer, the idea here is that you could create obstructions for these phonons, scattering sites of various types and sizes. And it's been demonstrated that you can do yeah. that, right? Yeah, so in a couple systems, and we'll, we'll skip the details. You can see the articles and learn more about them. But basically, yeah, you can basically get defect precipitates forming on the maybe, maybe nanometer scale. So where a point defect is on like the angstrom scale, now you're like 10 times larger. So how do you get even bigger? Well, then it's not rocket science. You can take, basically take these things, grind them up. So now you've got powders, and maybe these powders are between maybe 100 nanometers and a few microns. And then when you combine these back together, you have the grain boundaries that Andrew talked about earlier. These basically regions of misaligned crystals. And again, if you're a phonon trying to travel through this material and there's misalignment of the crystal lattice, like that's going to mess, that's going to be a scattering site. A, a tortured path for yeah. you. You have to go the long way around potentially, whereas the electrons may not. They may be able to just go right across grain boundaries as though yeah. they aren't there. So that's actually a really good point. And there's been a lot of engineering to do that. Like how do you have something that scatters phonons, but 
doesn't disrupt electrons. In order to maximize the thermal mismatch, but still have good electrical transport, then the precipitates that form, what you really want is you want their band edges to line up with the matrix. What do I mean by that? So we talked about the valence band, the conduction band as ways to get transport in these semiconductor materials. Um, what you want, let's say you have a material where the conductors are electrons, then your conduction band edge, if it is almost at the same energy level as the conduction band edge of the precipitate, then the electron's just gonna travel from one to the other without too much scattering. But that will still cause phonons to scatter pretty aggressively. So our ability to tune the height or the energy level of these different bands becomes really important. So there's been people who have done a lot of work in doping them in clever ways where you cause these bandages to line up really nicely. So to Paul's point, you have a nice smooth road for electrons, but for a phonon, it still looks like a really bumpy road, okay? Um, now there's, there's more subtlety that you can do here. For example, you can cause scattering, not even having to do with the precipitate that forms just in the matrix phase. You can do the same thing where you introduce um, interesting structure engineering. For example, um, something that happens in these is you have bands of conduction, right? And you can have what are called heavy bands and light bands. What do we mean by that? Well, imagine like some roads, like the highway, the freeway lets you travel, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour, but uh, through a neighborhood, you can only go 25 miles an hour. So the idea here is that you take these heavy bands and light bands. One allows really rapid motion, good mobility of your carriers, and the other one doesn't. If you bring them in close proximity to one another in terms of energy, then the carriers which would normally be stuck on that residential road can jump on the freeway. That's the idea behind this. So what you really wanna do, what you're looking for is you wanna bring these bands close together in terms of energy, and it opens up new pathways. You don't have to have an, another phase. There's no precipitate doing anything for you here. It's just band alignment. So that's tricky to do, but we can do it by controlling dopants and with temperature. So I, I'm just going to interject here a little bit because I'm the um, maybe the least academic here, uh, but I but I but I've definitely got some experience, some practical experience with thermoelectric generators. And and when we're generating power with these, what are we doing with them? In my in my case, we were sticking them in a fire, <laughs> right? We're we're taking these materials and we're literally putting them in a fire. So when we talk about things that are really dependent on, you know, very precise thermal control of the system, uh, very precise control of interstitial grain boundaries uh, that are all thermally activated, it, if we're actually going to practically use these things beyond the academic world. What we, on earth is going to happen to them? <laughs> yeah, like that, that's something that I feel like is like relatively – undocumented in these in these really complex alloys is like can can they actually be stable enough in the real world to make them like to actually create the material in enough quantity to use it and then can we actually expect it to retain those properties over thermal cycling or aggressive you know thermal yeah. treatment that's a really good criticism <laughs> that i think does get glossed over um, especially because sometimes, and as I know Paul's going to mention a little bit, of, but you can custom engineer lattices, right? You can force, you know, Good rows gap. of atoms to exist in one spot and then have a gap and then put them somewhere else, right? So we, we know how to engineer this, but is that going to be stable? I would say that if you're relying on an approach where thermodynamics puts these things in place, then it's going to be more likely to be stable than if you're engineering and hoping that, you know, diffusion, which is, you know, the movement of these atoms <laughs> yeah. under a gradient isn't going to happen because 
I think nature's going to get the best of you. Yeah, we'd like the, we'd like already to, to be in a stable state before we start heating and cooling these things. So, and you know, I, I we can talk about other ways we can uh, engineer the electronic structure, perhaps to to do this because we we've talked a lot about engineering the uh, thermal transport, the phonon scattering. We've talked a lot about that, but we haven't really talked about and trying to engineer the electronic side. Um, and I think some of the most interesting things that are going on there are where you get confinement effects, where we talk about the density of states um, in a semiconductor is this like parabolic thing uh, in the mod equation. And we can change the Siebeco coefficient by adjusting the density of states, right? As we lower the number of available states, we're going to raise that Siebeck coefficient. So with quantum confinement, the generally the same idea as other quantum systems is we've reduced the size scale down to the point where the box we're putting our electrons in is narrower than its mean free path or its its de Broglie wavelength, um, and that reduces the density of states that it can it can it starts to look more like an atom than a, a valence band conduction band system and quantum dots have line functions uh, you know a, a quantum ref- confinement in a two-dimensional plane is going to have like a step Steps, function yeah. that these are all very popular very buzzwordy um, and I just kind of it, until I can buy a device that utilizes this on Amazon I'm, I'm just like really skeptical that this is the path forward is making these complex nanowire structures or whatever that aren't thermally stable tiny grains that as soon as you heat them up anneal into big grains uh, it just doesn't get me excited as much as, you know, the, the actual nuts and bolts of practical device engineering. So I think that's kind of an important thing kind of with this conversation to have in mind is that there's been a lot of interesting new ideas. I I think what has lagged behind has been the translation out of the laboratory of some of these things like testing them. You know, we were talking offline, but one of the major things that can influence performance, you know, it might be like mechanical properties of these things as you cycle them. Maybe they crack or maybe they yeah. maybe you can't bond to them, right? If you can't uh, and attach an electrical contact to these things without huge resistances, who cares what its properties look like? So these, or, pr- these pragmatic things aren't quite as sexy to study as like the ZT, you know, of two plus, but they are critically important to solve. Yeah. And I mean, when we go back to BizTel, Bismuthelluride, the, the standby, the main, the main thermoelectric material right now that's relevant um, for broad application. And how are these devices assembled? Well, they're largely assembled by hand, people with forceps and literally, you know. Like soldering contacts like, onto them? Well, there's some automation, but there are people who are placing the N couples and people who are placing the P couples and they have templates and they then are hot pressed and, and the contact, you know, to make these things commercially, they have to be mass producible, yeah. you know. And so a lot of these, you know, really esoteric techniques are, are – Potentially scalable, right? Because we, we make integrated circuit devices at huge scale. Um, very large circuit, in, you know, circuit integration techniques are quite advanced now. But translating that to something that is more like, you know, putting together an electronic device or an iPhone or something like that where you have to – or a, populating a circuit board, making contacts is like 
a huge issue. It's a yeah. <laughs> right, which, so, which we like, pass off as just, the materials research is like, oh, that's trivial. Some yeah, some system some, level designer will take care of that it, for it's us. But it's generally not. I mean, you can use solder, solder yeah. diffuses. You can. I've seen some very fancy techniques using CVD or even like atomic layer deposition, growing epitaxial contacts because contacting some of these weird four element systems that are slight blends of each. They don't wet with the different sides. They don't, yeah, they have really weird surface properties. Their valence band may be in, their conduction band may not line up with typical contact materials. So you may have to really engineer your contact materials. But but the ultimate fact is we need to have a couple, right? We have two, we have an N-type and a P-type couple, and we're passing heat through them, and then we're trying to create an electric circuit from them. But we almost never deal with just two couples, which adds another level of complexity, which is that now when we're stringing multiple couples together, those have to be, you know, in tune with each other. So we have to have large uh, uniformity across our couple production, our dice, the little pieces of yeah. thermoelectric material that actually go into a macro device. I'm not talking about growing these epi on semiconductors directly. That's a yeah. that that's a, like a different field than I'm really in, I, but. You know, our, our device, the power pot, we put water in it. It's a backpacking pot. You put it on your campfire or a camp stove, and it makes electricity to charge your cell phone, right? So it's a pretty – we're putting a lot of rigor on that. It's getting huge temperature <laughs> difference across it. It's lots of thermal cycling, totally uncontrolled in term, you know, compared to the laboratory. So if we have one couple break in that, that's our weakest link, and now the system failed. But th- that doesn't generally happen. But as you add more couples, you're trying to make more power. Statistics to, is not in your is, favor. <laughs> is, yeah, the the Weibull modulus of that goes to crap. You know, the more the more elements you have in it, the the less likely you are to have success. So what we've seen a lot of, or I've seen a lot of, is these demonstration level devices where you have two or four or eight couples, and they work fantastically. You get 15% efficiency. It, you know, they they totally work up to 700 degrees C, reliable cycling, but we had to grow the contacts with atomic layer deposition and we have like <laughs> a bunch of poisonous metals involved and it took a team of 20 people six days to produce one module. Um, and, and you know what's interesting in all this? It, we still haven't said anything about other major problems like oxidation. Like, yeah, just, okay, if you, if you, if you put yeah, together to elements like... <laughs> You know that are that are easily prone to forming oxides, and then you're going to heat this thing up to start capturing high temperature waste heat. If it oxidizes, what's going to happen to its property? Are they totally toast? And if not, then do you have to protect it in some way? It becomes challenging. Another issue Paul mentioned is toxicity, right? So thinking about the elements that go into these uh, bismuthelluride, I've talked many, I've published on this at great length, but tellurium is something like the ninth rarest element on the planet. It's a byproduct of a byproduct of like copper mining. It is extremely rare. And so to think that we're going to replace, you know, refrigerators with Peltier coolers on this and many other things is probably a non-starter. And so there has to be discussion about picking materials that are not only high ZT, great performers, but are, you know, something we can produce at economic scale and won't have environmental implications or toxicity implications. So this is a, it's a complicated problem. This is why I say that this is, we gave birth to our own hardest materials design, you know, criteria by deciding to look at thermoelectrics, despite their potential, which is pretty significant. But you mentioned when you're connecting all of these different ones together, you know, so if you have, if you have an issue with one of them, like say one of them has a significantly lower efficiency than the other ones connected to it, like, is that going to limit everything yeah, after that? The, in the series? Thermoelectrics are a series device, right? Mm-hmm. That right. Every, so it's, 
every electron, if we think of an individual electron going through this, is that we're going to have to have that electron travel through every couple in our in our circuit and then go to do our work, mm-hmm. right? So that means that we are weakest weakest link limited. The weakest link will limit the performance or f- cause performance to fail, right? If it, one of the solder contacts in a in a 60 couple module goes bad, then you've just ruined the entire array. There's no way to get power out of it anymore because the circuit's broken, mm-hmm. right? Um, or if the solder diffuses on one corner because it gets extra hot on that corner and the solder diffuses into our uh, thermoelectric couples, then that corner now has like no Seebeck coefficient or its resistivity has gone high or its thermal conductivity has, you know, also gone low or, or gone higher. So, and it now doesn't produce as much voltage, but the current that flows through it is also limited. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it was bad that we lost the voltage, but it's it's an absolute deal breaker that the current doesn't flow anymore, right? So that that is a, a really big challenge in engineering these things uh, is the fact that we have to make everything in the system as good as it, every other thing in the system or it is limited by the worst thing. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you have to consider like degradations or damage that occurs from the oh, user. Yes, yeah. I mean, like you look sure, at every single product, trauma. they have like yeah. warning labels like do not eat. Like, yeah. and it's like... <laughs> some, some of these things are really fragile too, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about semiconductors, which we, you know, you think of crystals and uh, not being particularly strong, crumbly, heavy lead calcinogenides just kind of don't lend themselves to thinking of like, you know, boron nitride or <laughs> diamond strength, you know? So Paul, you're one of the few people I've known who's actually worked in the industry that's using thermoelectric devices. So um, with everything we've talked about today, maybe kind of towards a wrap up, I'm just kind of curious what your final thoughts are for the future. Looking forward, are you excited about it? Are you pessimistic? Are you, what do you think it would take to achieve, um, you know, a new device you can buy on Amazon that's doing interesting things? What has to happen? So I guess to talk for a second about what an ideal thermoelectric material would be. Like, let's okay. just, let's pie yeah, in yeah. the sky. Yeah, let's, let's hear it. You know, we're going to have high electrical conductivity, really low thermal conductivity. We're going to have a really low cost, low toxicity, high, high processing ability. So that means that it, it's easy to process. We don't need high temperature processes. So, or vacuum. So, so I guess what, what, I'm, what I would like to see is we've really focused on these materials science parameters, the electrical and thermal properties, trying to engineer band gaps and the grain structures. Those are very, very uh, easy things to talk to other material scientists about, get funding for. Um, what I've seen less of is like taking these things to device. Let's take this from the laboratory and try and go at least with faltering steps out into the real world and see if maybe some of these uh, things might be dead ends, like they're just unworkable, too toxic, too difficult to process. And if so, let's, you know, focus on things that that are that are, you know, plausible candidates, something like something that would be that I don't see people really working on. you, You see some some stuff, but things that are really low cost are probably more and really processable are probably the way forward in terms of a a massive adoption of thermoelectric generation. Because when you think about it, it's like a solar resource, right? There's a ton of it. There's a ton of heat flowing in our environment. 
if we're really going to move to alternative energy sources, the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, but the ground heats up during the day and loses its heat to further down under night, radiates back to the sky. There's a bunch of heat flowing and all day long. And you're talking about low-grade And we're talking heat. about low-grade heat. So meaning really small differences in temperature. Differences in temperature that are 50 C yeah. or less, or 100 C and less is typically So devices that capture that. That has big implications. At some balance of system cost, where you've you know you, you've optimized it to the point where it's cheap enough to produce in massive scale, and it's good enough to harness these energy resources that are really abundant. Well, let's wrap up the episode. Uh, I'll just remind our view, our listeners, you know, if you enjoyed any of the information that we covered in today's podcast, you want to learn more about it. We've always got great show notes where we post some of the links to these things. For example, the history section we took from an excellent web page put together by Jeff Snyder's group at Northwestern. Um, and there's lots of great articles we pulled from, and we'll have links to those. Um, as always, if you've got questions or feedback, we'd love to have you send us emails. You can do so at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to our show. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, really anywhere you want to listen, you can find us. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a review. Give us those five stars. Tell us why you love the show. And that's going to help other people find the show as well. Um, finally, check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast where you can connect with us. Heck, if you want to suggest a new topic, we're all ears. We're happy to hear about it. And finally, we want to give a shout out to Alphabot as well as Call by Music. They've done a great job to help add some dynamic sounds to this podcast. And we'll see you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton. The makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. 